Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Glenn Barkley, CEO of Senior Housing Development and Management Company QSL Management and principal of its parent organization, QSL. The operator has 10 communities branded under the Blake name in Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, Tennessee, and Virginia. Like most other senior living providers during the COVID-19 pandemic, QSL management is currently grappling with staffing. To help with those challenges, the operator is rolling out a new position called a retention specialist aimed at helping with recruiting and onboarding. QSL has already piloted the position in one of its communities earlier this year, and Barclay said it has so far significantly reduced turnover there. It's a move-in coordinator for employees. We want them to feel welcome. We want to make sure that they're getting the right training. We want to make sure that someone is helping them through that first two weeks, first 30 days, and then that 90-day mark. But before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our next Build Conference happening in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Build is an annual event dedicated to the latest trends in senior living architecture, design, and innovation for owners, operators, and developers. Hear how industry players are redefining senior living development and planting their stakes now to reshape the future. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. And now, here's my interview with Glenn Barkley, CEO of QSL Management and principal of its parent company, QSL. Glenn Barkley, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. So I wanted to start with kind of getting the layout of QSL and sort of what your company is all about. I know QSL is sort of a unique company in that you are one of two companies with communities branded under the Blake name. And I've written about this. The other company is Blake Management Group. I also know that QSL's management company and real estate platforms kind of stand apart as distinct entities. So I thought it would be helpful before we get too deep into our discussion. Can you kind of talk about how QSL came to be as a company and also just sort of lay out the company's organizational structure for us? Sure. First, I want to thank you for having me on today. I've been looking forward to it. And your first question is a good question. (laughs) I get asked that often. It is an interesting story. I'll kind of start off with how Blake Management Group was founded. We had two development companies. One is QSL. That's my company. And we partnered with another development company called CBI. And we partnered to both build the first Blake building and to operate the first Blake building. And so CBI and QSL went into a joint venture together, both as developers and as a management company. And our first building was opened in 2008 in Gulf Breeze, Florida. We had a great time building that building. We had a great time opening it and managing it. It was a real success story for us. And we began to to follow that same pathway. We began to develop together. And then as we opened a building, we would manage it together. We got together and we decided, you know what? We could probably develop more buildings if we actually separated Agreed on standards for for the building, agreed on the design of the building, what is important to us, what still really aligns with our business plan, our values, and the whole reason that we're in this industry. And so we decided to start developing separately, and it worked. We developed, we were able to develop more buildings, we were able to be more innovative and learn from each other, and we continued to operate those buildings as Blake Management Group. So that was the first step of kind of realizing we may be able to get more done more efficiently 
if we start developing separately. As we grew as a company, as any company, you have different investor groups, especially starting out. You know, starting out early in the game, we had what I would say your country club investment groups, a lot of individuals coming together. And as we grew, grew as a company and grew our relationships, we had more institutional type of funding, capital companies wanting to to help us and join with us. And we began to notice kind of the same problems. You know, we, we began to notice that we had some ownership groups that maybe wanted to go in a little bit different direction as follow as as far as the design and possibly even some of the systems that we put in and other owners that wanted something different. It was really hard to please them. And so we were spending a lot of time at the table and that's not where we wanted to be. You know, I, I want to be out there building buildings and I want to be out there with my residents and with my teams. And, and so we decided to do that. And so that's when we actually divided the portfolios by ownership interest and a little bit by region, but it was really more strongly, I guess, pushed in the direction of ownership interest. And so that's what we did. It was a very amiable separation. We still work very closely together. We still have standards that we meet. We still share our designs. We share our systems and and different philosophy, what's working well, what doesn't work well. We still have the same, you know, mission to be the, the premier senior living community in our markets. And I probably talk to, to Blake Management Group, you know, uh, at least weekly. And so that's, that's kind of the story. So as far as how QSL got started, QSL obviously got started in the very beginning. We formed QSL to develop properties and to join with CVI to form Blake Management Group. But it really came from a personal situation for me. My mother-in-law needed assisted living. I was a customer and I've been in healthcare all my life. I right out of college. I, I got a degree in finance, moved into healthcare, later got became a registered nurse. So healthcare is in my blood. It's what I love. And we started looking for a place for my mother-in-law. And I began to tour buildings and, and we just could not find what make us feel comfortable. You know, we couldn't get that peace of mind. We couldn't get comfortable with what we were seeing. I was at that time, especially this is we're talking, you know, early, you know, 2002, 2004, somewhere around in that area. Senior living seemed to really be in a rut, you know, the late 90s and coming out of the the 90s. I was seeing the same old thing and not a lot of innovation. Really, hospitality was kind of on the back burner. It wasn't something that that folks were talking about a lot. It was kind of kind of more just meet the basic needs, you know, and not really thinking out of the box. And I was in senior living at the time. I was working for a what I would say an intermediate sized senior living company, a national senior living company. And I was experiencing a little bit of the same frustration in in my role with that company as I wanted to think outside of the box. And they had a very specific niche that they wanted to stay in. And I really wanted to do more. So both of those things coming together really propelled me to co-found QSL with my partners, Andy Yarborough and Judy Belk. But basically, it was also to build a place for my mother-in-law. So I had a a very specific motivation and personal interest in developing a product that I was happy with, that I could go home and sleep well, knowing that my mother-in-law was going to be taken care of. 
And so she was one of our first residents at the Blake at Gulf Breeze, opened it in 2008. She was one of the first group to move in and she absolutely loved it. And I went through that same experience of, you know, she had her own home, she had her own car, she lived in a, in a rural area and we knew she needed to be close to us. But I had to go through that same process of working with our family to decide on the, the best place for her to live, the best support system, where that was going to be, and then convince her to move. And that was really, really hard for her. And it was hard for us. Yeah, it's hard for us. Um, but she moved, made friends. She absolutely loved it and thrived. I remember like a, after a week that she was in the Blake, she, uh, she says like a cruise ship that never leaves. And uh, I knew my work was done. I felt so good about that, you know, that I had made my mother-in-law happy. You know, that's, (laughs) you know, my wife is excited. She was, she felt good about it. And so that's really how QSL got its start. Great. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. That, That's a very interesting story. So I understand that QSL targets secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah. Tell me more about that strategy at play. And I'm also curious, has the COVID-19 pandemic made that strategy harder or even easier? Yeah. We let me answer the first part of that question first. We want to be one of one. You know, we don't want to be we want to be the premier senior living in that area. And, you know, we look at bigger markets, but they're really saturated. I mean, I just read on on senior living. I read an article about, you know, the saturation in Atlanta and some of these some of these areas, even though there's I believe that there's still room for new developers in those markets because, you know, they continue to grow and evolve as well. But we just really feel like we have found our niche in those secondary and tertiary markets and to be one of one. And what I mean by that is, you know, we we look for markets that don't necessarily have a high end, top end independent living. We really build our buildings to meet the needs or to attract a very low acuity resident. In fact, about 40 percent of the residents that move into a Blake initially are completely independent not even on medication management. We found early on that one of our primary problems was parking. And, you know, in senior living, that's not something that you think is going to be one of your primary challenges. But we had so many residents still driving that that actually became a problem for us. And we had to plan for that in our design as we moved forward. So we look for a, a market that really doesn't have a strong independent living offering, or maybe the only offering that they have is a CCRC with a heavy buy-in. And that's not our model. You know, we, we it's a, a small community fee to reserve and to move in. And then it's a month to month agreement between us and the and the resident and responsible party. So that's really what we look for. We found our niche. We've done really well with it. And yeah, that's that's pretty much our strategy. Now, as far as covid, I would say that, you know, I wouldn't think that our challenge in a secondary and tertiary market has been much different from some of the larger markets. You know, really, COVID has, has affected us all. It's affected rural areas. It's affected small towns. It's, you know, it's, it's affected big metropolitan areas. Uh, so I, I don't think, I think we've all experienced probably the same challenge, maybe a little bit different. Maybe there's some unique aspects to it. But, you know, we're pretty much following CDC. We're following, you know, the, the federal mandates. We all have state mandates that are pushed down to to the local level. And then you have your county and your city mandates as well. Pretty much, you know, it's usually the state setting setting those mandates. But for us, we were usually 
if not 100% ahead of those mandates. You know, we, we were implementing lockdowns and precautions and masking very early in the game. Actually, when, you know, there was still the thought that, you know what, this COVID's probably not going to be a big deal. If you remember back in January and February, even they were saying, hey, don't worry, go out. You're going to be fine. You know, uh-huh. don't get don't get into a panic. And then in March, you know, kind of probably towards mid-March of 2020, it was like lock everything down, stop admissions, wear your mask. It, this is getting really serious. We probably were ahead of that and it served us well. So, you know, we following following the state, the city and the county guidelines. I can tell you that different markets, even with the mandates in place, we found that we have to be flexible and understand how our markets feel or perceive COVID as well. You know, maybe we have a property in Charlottesville, um, Virginia, and we also have a, a, a property in Kingsport, Tennessee. Those two markets probably respond differently. The mandates are probably the same, but we have to tailor our message to what, what are the needs of the prospects coming in? You know, one prospect may be coming in to Kingsport, Tennessee, saying, I'm really concerned about socialization. I want to know how you are keeping your residents connected to families, connected to their peers. How are you keeping them active in this situation? A market in Charlottesville may come in and say, I'm more concerned with your COVID precautions. Explain that to me. Explain how you're keeping COVID out of your building. What what kind of lockdowns or mandates or screening do you have in place? What kind of wellness policies and processes do you have in place? So we've had to just listen very intently. So, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, we're talking a lot to our nurses and our directors of wellness. We were talking a lot to sales as well. What are our prospects saying when they're calling? You know, and how are you answering those questions and how can we equip you to answer the specific questions that are coming to you from your market? So you mentioned independent living and that's a big you know, service line for you. How has independent living demand held up? I know I've talked with providers who said, you know, early on in the pandemic that independent living took a hit as people started to shift towards, you know, more of a needs-based move in. Right. Now I've heard though that with with this, you know, in the past few months, independent living demand has really picked up for some providers in some markets. So what are you seeing um, where QSL is located? All of our buildings are licensed as assisted living. So even though we market, we build our programming, we, we build our socialization, our activities, all of that, we do gear it to a low acuity independent prospect. But we are fully licensed as assisted living so that they can easily come in, age, to, age in place. They don't have to move within a building or move within a campus or even move out and move somewhere else to get the care. They can come in and be completely independent and then age in place and not have to change apartments because every apartment is licensed under the state's assisted living authority. Now, I would say that, you know, early in the pandemic, I think all of us were were challenged. I mean, I think all of us were hit. Most of us in senior living were, were not admitting at all, probably from about March to June or July, some even longer than that. We opened up with new processes, new protocols, new wellness in place on June 1st of 2020, a slow kind of kind of opening. And as we got more comfortable and our staff got more comfortable, our prospects got more company, our, our families got more uh, comfortable, we opened that that up even further. But I would say in the beginning, we all suffered. And I would say, you know, that the needs base is right because 
when you're talking about a memory care resident and a family that's that's just in a really bad position, COVID probably only makes that worse, you know? And so they needed that placement. And we saw that. And we even did a study that the folks that were coming in for assisted living, even though our model is to attract that low acuity, we saw them coming in with a higher acuity. So we, we knew our level of care rose, our level of, of care fees rose across the board at all of our properties. I also want to ask you about Hurricane Ida. I recall that I received an email from you guys talking a little bit about what you had done to you know, keep power and critical services flowing. I think this is really relevant because this is something that as I talk with providers, they're putting more and more thought into things like disaster preparedness, especially with how unpredictable the past you know couple of years have been. So what's your strategy for disaster preparedness? You know, what, what worked in that situation when, when Hurricane Ida came through and uh, affected your communities? I think it was in the New Orleans area. Right. And then just more generally, how do you budget for disaster preparedness? That seems like uh, it can be a tricky thing to figure out. It definitely can be. I grew up in Louisiana. I live in Florida. So hurricanes are a part of our culture. Even, you know, we, we've all gone through multiple hurricanes and disaster situations. So, you know, some things I think you have to go through to learn. You just, you learn through every experience. And I've been through a lot of those experiences. So I, I do have that, that benefit. But I think everyone needs to plan that a disaster can hit any building at any time, whether it be a fire, whether it be a tornado, a hurricane, earthquake, whatever it may be, a disaster can hit at any time and you need to be fully prepared. So that's the the mindset that we go go into preparation with. We have two values that really stand out and really guide us. And I know people talk about values a lot. You know, we live by our values, but we really have to in this situation. So we have a core value of safety and we have a core value of joy. And those are very different, but we use those to prepare for Hurricane Ida. And let me explain. Safety is pretty self-explanatory. You've got to, you got to plan for power, food. You got to make sure that you have an environment that's, that's, you know, that contributes to the wellness of your, of your team. I'm talking about the temperature of your building, water, all those, all those things are obvious. But joy came into it that, well, how do we, how do we promote joy? That's our value. How do we promote joy during a, an upcoming disaster? And a category four hurricane is, is nothing to, to not be e- extremely concerned about. I mean, right. it, was a, it was a very dangerous situation. So the way that we define joy is that it's really a place that we create for our residents, our team members, and our families. And it is the opposite of anxiety. So the more anxiety that we can remove from our team members, families, and residents, the more joy that they are going to experience. And it really helped us because it wasn't just about how can we make sure we have power? How can we make sure we have water, food, the temperature's correct, that their needs are going to take care of, medications are going to be there, all the supplies are going to be there that the building is sound and safe, that we're, that we're making the right decision as far as whether to evacuate or not to evacuate. We've got to get that message to them so that they feel secure and safe so that we can reduce that anxiety and that even in the midst of a hurricane, a category four, our residents can still experience joy, safety, and peace of mind. Of course, we start with our design. I, I believe that we have a benefit that we are an operator and a developer. 
So we have two properties in development. You know, we at any given time, we may have somewhere between four to eight that are either in development or in early lease up stage. So we are we have a lot of resources at our disposal with our general contractors and our subcontractors, and we take full advantage of that. I would encourage all senior living providers that if you're not an owner operator developer, that you make a a relationship with a general contractor that can help you plan and think of things that you would never think of from a, as a healthcare or an operator or a hospitality provider from a construction and in a disaster standpoint, have them on a retainer or have them on contract that they are dedicated to you. I cannot imagine going through a situation like that. And then afterwards, post event, trying to put that piece into place. Just think about that. If you didn't have that piece in place before Hurricane Ida hit, a Category 4 hurricane, how are you going to find the contractors to do the work that you need to do? How, how are you going to you know, get the generators? How are you going to make sure you have water coming in? What if you have sewer backing up? What if you have a lift station and the generator and the power goes out on your lift station? What if you have leaks or HVAC issues? What if you have a window blown out? Something like that or, or water intrusion into your building. Those kind of things are really the expertise of a general contractor. And so if you don't have that in place, I encourage you to really think about that. Even if you're not in a hurricane prone area, you know, a tornado can do even more damage than a hurricane. I mean, I fear tornadoes maybe even more than a hurricane because they come out of nowhere. And, I'm from and, St. Louis, so I, I totally yeah. agree. <laughs> if you have a general contractor on, on standby, that can help you and have those subcontractors in place, it is really going to help you through that, that event. So that's one thing that we, that we made sure. You also have to think of evacuation and you can't think of evacuation as I'm going to decide I'm going to evacuate three days before, four, even four, five, six, seven. You, you can't think of it that way. You have to have it in your plan and know exactly what to do. And you have to be willing to mobilize that evacuation team and the resources, including your buses, your the, your transportation, even if you're not sure you're going to evacuate. You can't decide two days before, oh, gosh, Hurricane Ida went from a Category 1 to a Category 4, with it, which is basically what happened. And now I've got to get buses there as quickly as I can, or I've got to evacuate in place in a situation that's not going to be good. So we mobilized those buses and had them on site, which is it's an expense that you just have to be willing to make based on your values and your commitment to your residents. So those buses were there. It turned out that we didn't need them, but we moved them there because we knew we're not going to be able to mobilize them ahead, uh, far enough ahead if we wait to see just how bad is this going to be. So you have to think of the worst and pre- not just prepare for the worst, but mobilize for the worst. And so that's what we did. The other thing that, you know, as a developer, we design our buildings with generators that are natural gas. So we don't have to worry about diesel being being brought in. That's that's something that we thought of ahead of time. So we have two large generators that, that power at least probably 50% of our building key areas. Of course, all of our emergency systems and communication systems, our elevators, but it powers our full kitchen, the cooler, the freezer. It powers, you know, key areas throughout the building, air conditioning and key areas throughout the building. Because 
you've got to remember, you got to keep your residents cool. The other thing that we did, we worked with our contractor that we had generators, additional generators brought in about the, I think it was the second day post storm that we had four additional generators brought in. Our contractor was there with the, with the electrician. They were able to hook it up. We were working closely with the, with the local government there, the, the mayor's office. And, and getting those hooked up. So our entire building was powered, completely air conditioned, everything running. Our residents didn't miss a four course meal, even in the, the midst of the hurricane, the day after the hurricane. Part of me actually felt you feel a little guilty because you see, I don't know if you saw on the news, but the power outage was massive. And it was it was a heat wave at the same time. We were in the 90s. Houses and buildings were heating up over 100 degrees and our residents were sitting in a cool air conditioned building with activities, going to the bar, going to the dining room, eating a four course meal and had really no interruption of service at all. So definitely you, you need to prepare for the generators and you've got to make that decision to get the generator. If, if your building doesn't have generators on site, as you know, as part of your part of your design, then you've got to get them there again far enough in advance. And you have to make that decision based on what is the worst that could happen. Right. The other is water. So we had, you can't just think of, a lot of times I think uh, senior living thinks of water as just drinking water. We've got to have plenty of bottled water, you know, on site, make sure that we, that we have water for our residents. But you also have to have water that you can wash your dishes. We lost complete water. You have to have water there on site before the storm, wash dishes, laundry, Flushing toilets, toilets don't work. I mean, you got to have all that water there as well in case you lose water and you can't drink it, nor do you have, you know, any running into your building. So that's probably a long answer, but I hope I covered the, the most important parts. Yeah, I think I think you certainly did. I think the advice about the general contractor, I've heard other providers say that to me too. And the generators, of course, that is something that's, it's always so interesting to me. I, I talk with people and I don't know that some of this equipment exists until I hear about it. So that's interesting. That must have felt, I don't know if the right word is validating, but that seems to me like that's the core value proposition of senior living, right? Come to us, you'll be safe here, even when the rest of the world is, you know, maybe not. Within our walls, we'll do our best job to keep you safe. So I guess that that, that probably felt, you know, that, that felt very good, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, it did. And I think you and I discussed that during the week post-hurricane, Literally the day after we were preparing for admissions, we admitted at least 20 residents that were in need almost immediately. We also had capitalized on our relationships with our furniture providers. So, you know, we're developing buildings. So we have a relationship with furniture providers and they were ready to ship furniture in. We, we fully furnished 14 apartments because we had residents that needed to come in that lost everything or they couldn't get a mover. Because that's the thing, after a hurricane, all the contractors, all the subcontractors, furniture, all that is there's a massive shortage supply, right? So they can't get movers. They can't get furniture. So we had those set up. So in the midst of that post-hurricane, we were loading and setting up apartments to make sure that residents had a place to go. We had residents that came to us from different different types of living environments that were really destroyed, roofs blown off, water, you know, uh, rained all through the through the building. In very serious situations, we had residents come in dehydrated, near heat exhaustion. 
So it, it was definitely validating for my team there to say, you know what, we, we brought our residents through a potential disastrous situation. But not only that, we're, we're able to help our team and help the area, you know, get into a better place. I, I think that was that was extremely meaningful to my team. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure we could spend a lot more time just talking about this topic alone, but I want to ask you about something else. Sure. So staffing, that seems to be the, the big challenge right now in the senior living industry. I, I wrote a story the other day. There was a, a recent survey from Aka Encal, I believe, that showed 77% of the assisted living providers they had talked to thought that staffing problems had gotten worse since June. So mm-hmm. I thought that was that was a, a very interesting statistic. So it's clear that this is on a lot of people's minds. What are you seeing in terms of staffing pressure? And how are you trying to overcome that challenge if it is indeed something that's challenging yeah. for you? I would say probably most of the folks out there would agree this is the most challenging staffing market that we've ever encountered. But it, you know what? I've been doing this. I'm not going to tell you how long I've been doing this because I don't show my age. I've been doing it for a while. been healthcare for a long time. I remember when I first started just, you know, as a director of my first administrator position, the number one problem I had was staffing. That was back in the 90s. And today, if you ask me what our number one challenge is, it's staffing. It's, it's people, getting the right people that share your values, paying them what they need to be paid, offering them the benefits and the culture that attracts them. That's still the biggest challenge. But I would say with COVID, it's become even even more so challenging. We're doing a lot. You know, we raised our, our base wages. You know, we raised them significantly to attract folks to come into this industry. Senior living got a, a, a really bad press. You know, the, the PR on senior living right out of covid was not good. And the PR still in healthcare isn't good. You know, we, we see a lot of conflict right now with providers and, and with healthcare workers and administration. So we're trying to do everything that we can to, to continue to build the right culture internally, to address their needs, to, to, to make sure that we're communicating with our, with our team members and with potential prospects. I said that we w- raised our wages. We did a lot of incentives throughout COVID and still do, even more so than we did in the past. Very intentional things to keep them motivated and keep our team appreciated. One thing that we are rolling out in the the next year, we piloted it this year very successfully. It reduced our turnover significantly in the building that we piloted this program is we have a position that we call a retention specialist. So, we also have a move-in coordinator on the residence side when we open a building, meaning that that's all they do. They move somebody in. They make sure that experience is exceptional. They take care of all the problems. They do exactly what kind of what I talked about, remove the anxiety so they can experience joy during that move-in. That's what this position does. It's a move-in coordinator for employees. So they also help with recruiting. They make sure that our onboarding process is followed. I think most companies would say, I have a great onboarding process, but maybe only 50% of it is followed consistently. We want to get that onboarding process to 100%. You know, we want to do all those things that, that are both regulatory, but also that are just best practice and that, for lack of a better word, is our heart. You know, we want them 
to feel welcome. We want to make sure that they're getting the right training. We want to make sure that someone is kind of standing beside them, helping them through that first two weeks, first 30 days, and then that 90-day mark. We find those are the most important times to make sure that an employee feels safe and secure in their position. One of the number one reasons, if not the number one reason that someone quits their job, either a no call, no show, or just an immediate resignation is because of anxiety related to not knowing what they're supposed to do. They don't have the training and the anxiety gets the best of them and they just throw up their hands and they leave. We want to remove that again as part of that joy value, remove as much of the anxiety and give them a good start. And we know if we get through those benchmarks, two weeks, 30 days, 90 days, we have a good chance of keeping them engaged afterwards. I like what you called that retention specialist position, the move-in coordinator for employees. I think that's that's catchy. I like that. So staffing is one of the challenges that the industry is facing right now. This is a weird time for the senior living industry. And I've talked with a lot of folks who have a lot of differing opinions as to what's ahead and what they're worried about and what they're excited about. So how do you feel about the months ahead and what has you most worried? And then also, you know, what are you most optimistic about or what what even has you excited? Um, I'll start with optimism. (laughs) I have been extremely impressed with the resiliency of the senior living industry. Just those folks that are in senior living are not deterred. They may voice concerns and they're anxious about the future, but I don't see them afraid. You know, I see them as courageous. And, you know, in a recent exercise with with my senior leadership team, we were like, how do we categorize ourselves? Are we caregivers? There's different ways that you categorize the heroes. You know, how do you categorize yourself? I categorize us as heroes. Yes, we're caregivers, but there's a lot of caregivers out there, but we're heroes. We are going over and and beyond. Caregiver is a given. That's we're going to be caregivers. We're compassionate people. But we're also going to rise to the challenge and overcome it. And I think senior living, like I said, it was in a rut coming out of the 90s and into the into the early 2000s. I think it's become much more innovative. People are thinking out of the box. I see more excitement, you know, and people wanting to think outside of the box. So I, that's where my optimism lies. I'm also optimistic because of what I've seen since we've opened back up. Yes, we've had to take some step backwards. There's still mandates out there. We're still in masks and we still have to be careful with activities and socialization. All that is is still there, but we're overcoming it and occupancy is rising. We've seen occupancy rise consistently month over month. Um, we're, we're really excited about what we're seeing in occupancy. We can have, you know, depending on the market and, and the number of, of units that we have available, we, we can see eight to 10 emissions in a month. So we are definitely seeing the industry revive and and overcome. So I'm excited about that. I probably am with everybody else. When you ask me, you know, what's what's the challenge that you're thinking of in the future? Staffing's always going to be there, but I'm still concerned about COVID. You know, it's every day that you're you've got to stay as current as possible, and it's hard with all the the different information that is out there. But I mean, like literally in the last. 24 hours, we're starting to see articles on R1 variant. And we have a, a obviously a, a senior living or a long-term care facility in Kentucky that's unfortunately has had an outbreak of the R1 variant. And so I think that kind of 
you know, you, you feel like, okay, we're getting through Delta, you know, Delta hit us and now we're getting through Delta. And then you get up and you read in the morning, oh, okay, we have R1 variant. And the information that we have now is that it might not respond to the the vaccinations that we have in place. So is there going to be another vaccine or is that is, is that just not going to be covered? How, how's it going to be addressed? What kind of mandates will we have? Right now, we don't know. But I would say that uncertainty always keeps us kind of on our toes. You know, what's coming around the corner? We need to be ready to respond to that. We need to stay as up to date and current on the information as we can. So I think that's that's probably where I would say most of our concerns lie. Yeah, the R1 variant, I've, I've only read a little bit about that, but that does seem like a concern. So yeah, absolutely. That's something that I'm I'm going to keep my eye on as well. And I'm sorry to hear that you're having to deal with that. I want to ask you about sort of another question about the future. So we talked a little bit about, you know, how you feel about this industry. And so I'm curious, as you look at the industry as a whole, you know, if you had the ultimate power to sort of change something, what would you change and why would you change it? Oh, man, you know, that's a loaded question. That's a big question. (laughs) It goes back, it goes back to staffing. I would love to change the perception and make uh, senior living more attractive to a larger number of people. I would love to see um, colleges and universities. I'd love to see training programs that are really geared to senior living, not just nursing home administrator. We've done some internships with some folks who are getting their master's in healthcare administration. And it was discouraging to hear the college. We had to convince the college that senior living was legit. It was a legit place. It was a place where these young college adults were wanting to go. They were wanting to enter senior living, assisted living, independent living, or CCRC. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to do healthcare administration in a hospital or in a nursing home or in home health or hospice. They wanted to be in senior living. And many of them were told, no, you can't do that. You can't choose that as an intern. And that's really not healthcare administration. (laughs) And so we need to educate our colleges. We need to encourage our colleges to have curriculums. We need to seek out interns and college uh, uh, young adults. We need to make pathways for our frontline staff to move into bigger roles, whether it be in care or in administration or sales. We need to show them pathways. That's how I got my start in healthcare. I started really as I was in outpatient rehab, but I started as a tech. I did everything that your healthcare aide does in assisted living or a nursing home. That's how I got my start. And now I'm a CEO and an owner and a developer. I want others to know that they can take that same pathway. I think that's if I could just wave a magic wand, all of a sudden tomorrow morning, college professors and administration, they wake up and they say, you know what? That's a viable pathway. We're going to create a whole curriculum. I mean, I think Cornell has a whole curriculum on hotel management. Mm-hmm. Man, we, we need a whole curriculum on senior living because it is like hotel. It's like resort. It's residential. You have this huge healthcare and clinical component that's only growing. The regulatory aspect is only growing. And then you have this huge hospitality component that if you're going to be successful, you have to do all those things as top notch. You know, you can't halfway do it. And we need really skilled young people and and folks that want to go into it 
They need to know what is the pathway. So if I could wave my ratchet, magic wand, that would be it. Yeah. And I know that there are some universities trying to tackle this problem. I know that, uh, you know, there's, there's the Granger Cobb Institute at, I think that's at uh, Washington State University, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then there's, I know that, that Boston University is also trying to start up a senior living concentration. And I know Georgetown in DC does some of that too. But you're right. It's, I've talked to so many providers who said, you know, outside of these few schools, it's, it can be hard. Yeah. All right, Glenn, we are almost out of time here, but I, I want to sure. give you the chance at the end here to, so earlier you said QSL has got yeah. two projects in development. What else are you working on? What are your big initiatives right now? You know, what, what should we expect to see next out of your company? Definitely, we've got a project in Daytona Beach. It's uh, assisted living and memory care, 118 units. We've got another property that's that's going to get off the ground in St. John's, which, which is right out of Jacksonville. We've got several sites. You know, we are primarily a southeastern focused developer and operator. So, you know, Florida, Tennessee, Virginia, Louisiana, Mississippi, all of those states are are on our radar. We're also growing our senior leadership. So we're getting ready for the future. We know that we have a pipeline where, you know, we're going to have four in development, probably four in at least upstage at any given time. So we're constantly trying to stay ahead of our growth. We tend to scale way ahead and make sure that we're able to manage what we have on our plate. So we just hired, just moved one of our RVPs into a vice president of wellness. They'll only focus on wellness. We're hiring another um, regional vice president of operations. So just scaling for that that kind of growth is is what you're going to see for us. And then, you know, we're just still trying to be as innovative as, as we can. Our new model has an open kitchen concept where you can see the chef cook out in the dining room. I think that's probably unique for assisted living. I've seen it in independent living. I don't see it. I don't think I've ever seen it in assisted living. So we're just still trying to see how can we bring into our communities what a individual would normally experience on their own outside the community? How can we build it into our design and offer it right within the walls of our community? Yeah. Well, Glenn Barkley, I know that we could talk so much more about many other topics, but we are out of time today. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on Transform. This has been great. No, I appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our upcoming build event in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on build and our other scheduled events. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.